I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part two of my interview with Johara Farhadie, the Chief Investment Officer and Executive Director of the Illinois State Board of Investment. She oversees a $20 billion defined benefit plan and a $4.5 billion deferred compensation plan. In this episode, Johara discusses how ISBI's investment process has been impacted by COVID-19, her advice to asset owners on diversity and inclusion, and how ISBI holds its investment partners accountable. I hope you enjoy. How has ISBI's investment process been impacted by COVID-19? Uh, what changes do you anticipate ISBI making, such as with asset allocation? So with asset allocation, I don't anticipate necessarily making any immediate changes or anything along those lines. I think, again, our portfolio, you know, like most people's, is sort of structured to, to weather different market cycles. And so I don't think an immediate reaction, especially with us not really knowing and the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street right now, like, and being unsure of what's going on, I don't think any of us should necessarily react from an asset allocation perspective. I think, you know, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, the due diligence process is going to have to shift. So we have an RFP out for general consulting. And I think, you know, none of us are going to a general consultant's office right now. And so we have to figure out, are we going to be comfortable doing a remote sort of due diligence process for this? And and I think the answer is going to be yes, just because we are probably familiar with a lot of the respondents. But I don't know if I would be comfortable with a brand new sort of situation and not knowing who managers are or whatever the case may be. I don't know if like a Zoom call is going to be enough to to do due diligence. Perhaps it is. It's sort of yet to be determined. But I, in talking to my peers and stuff, many have been comfortable doing re-ups or adding allocations to current managers. But I don't know if any I've talked to really have made commitments to new names. Um, so that's going to be hard for fundraising, I think, across the board. So, yeah, th that's really it. I, I think doing uh, in terms of governance and, and board oversight, I think we've adapted to do board meetings virtually. There were some amendments to our Open Meetings Act that allowed for us to have virtual meetings versus physical quorums. And that's that's been great. I, I, I think that we've sort of. Uh, adapt to that um, and, and we'll continue in that way until sort of uh, uh, new information is, is out there. What are your thoughts on how COVID-19 will change the asset management industry and maybe given our current environment of calls for racial justice, what are your thoughts on how the asset management industry might take this seriously? Yeah, I, I would tell you, I, I definitely thought the pandemic would impact our public markets, private, everything. I, I thought, it, but then I became sort of more, I got to tell you, I was more emotionally, obviously impacted by the call for change necessarily than the pandemic, knock on wood, thankfully, because my family is healthy and, and friends are, are thankfully healthy. And so maybe I was less sort of focused on that. But that's where I felt like I hope this is the time for all that we've been talking about in Illinois. I hope now is the time that people are going to 
pick up the phone, call me or call Angela Miller from Chicago Teachers who've been doing this for 13 plus years. Like we should, we, I feel like my phone should be ringing off the hook about figuring out ways to allocate to diverse managers, things like that. Like that's where I got excited. And I felt like, for example, this Williams project I mentioned earlier, I'm like, there couldn't be a better time to like find a partner to work on with this and, and do this research. That's where I hope that I'm optimistic that things will change. You know, when I talk to more senior people in the industry that have like are more experienced and their, their feedback to me is like, yeah, we had these conversations before we were excited, you know? So I, I'm again, I'm a half glass full kind of person. I am optimistic and I hope our industry changes now with maybe a new generation sort of asking for these changes and coming up again with creative ways of figuring out why things are the way they are, where, why they, the, they are the way they were per se. So I definitely think there's going to be impacts of the pandemic for sure. I just don't know what it is yet. Everyone keeps talking about office and real estate and, and all of that. I just don't know where that's going to be. For me, I'm not sure how that real estate situation is going to play out. I just know now that the transactions are slow and it's sort of creating a liquidity issue, but I don't necessarily have thoughts on what the pen. I, I don't even know really what the markets are doing. You know, it's so different than what is going on day, you know, so it's hard to sort of understand that volatility from the short term. For me, I'm really excited and hopeful that we really can affect some change in our, when it comes to being more diverse in the financial industry. I feel like now is our sort of platform. And I, I hope we all sort of that are leaders in the space, take the opportunity to get up on that platform and advocate in a, in a way that's different and more effective than we've done in the past. And I just, I hope we can all sort of a year from now have a, a different conversation, even if it's just minor, I hope it's a different conversation. And you mentioned earlier that your phone should be ringing off the hook with people, other peers of yours wanting to understand or learn from you and ISBE's efforts on diversity and inclusion, like maybe provide some advice for those other asset owners who want to achieve some of the diversity and inclusion that ISBE has achieved. One, I think it, it you need support. So if you're uh, someone in my position, for example, you need your board members advocating and supporting you. It has to come from the top down. It has to be a priority. I think the way you do that is set policies at the end of the day, set goals. Again, back to numbers don't lie. So set a goal, try to achieve that goal and be public about that information to hold yourself accountable. We do quarterly emerging manager committee meetings and Really, I, I structured that meeting a long time ago to hold us accountable. The committee existed before me, but what I did was every quarter put together a presentation saying, here's where the number is today and here's where it will be hopefully tomorrow. And then next meeting, okay, well, this is where we thought the number was going to be. Here's why we are where we are today. All of that, holding yourself accountable, even someone like me who is absolutely passionate about the subject and wants to make a difference Holding me accountable forces me to get creative, think of different ways that we could advance this sort of mission and, and, and goal. And so I think one, setting leadership, having leadership, 
setting policies with goals, actual numbers outlined in them, and then holding those, holding yourself accountable to those numbers. Having an open door policy, meeting with managers, any good investor is going to want the widest opportunity set. I feel like a broken record. I've said this so many times. So to have the widest opportunity set, you're going to have to be more inclusive and, and, and vet firms that you may have never seen, met or heard of before. Right. So, um, that, that, that should just be a natural thing for all of us if we were good investors and then partnering with folks that have the same mission and goal in mind. So when we issued in the past, when we issued RFPs for like manager selection related work, whether it's a general consultant or a partner, I'd always ask, tell me the last 10 minority and women-owned firms you've allocated to. By the way, they have to just meet the Illinois definition. I kid you not, most of the time, they were never minority or women-owned firms. They would they would qualify as emerging firms because they were smaller firms, but rarely was that list encompassing minority and women-owned firms. So one, you knew there was a disconnect in understanding the definition uh, in Illinois, but more importantly, they didn't have a minority or women-owned firm that they'd allocated to in the past, or at least they didn't have 10. They may have had three, but they didn't have 10. And if you think about it, that's 10 is nothing. That number, you know, so small relative to all the managers that are allocated to. So I think partnering with someone that has the same sort of desire to advance diversity and inclusion, or at least understands your mission and is willing to adapt and, and change themselves, I think is important. You've highlighted your relationship with BlackRock. In a recent letter from Larry Fink on racial injustice, he wrote, as a firm committed to racial equality, we must also consider where racial disparity exists in our own organizations and not tolerate our shortcomings. How does ISB press BlackRock and other investment managers that it does business with to employ people of color at their firm in numbers that better represent our population also that they are not only hiring, but also retaining and promoting people of color to senior positions, for example, even to potentially lead BlackRock one day? Great question. So I, I think that the, the best way for us is to ask the question. You know, so we ask the question about their staff diversity, their hiring efforts, and I've said at nauseum now, uh, but holding them accountable. So if we asked last year and then we ask again the next year, and if those numbers aren't really different, then, then we should have another conversation. But it's like everything else in, it, in advancing this effort. It really is asking the question and then holding them accountable that you will follow up. Uh, it doesn't stop at that one question. I think that's, that's important. I was actually just talking to another firm recently, again, related to the Williams Project um, called Lennox Advisors. I'm going to get that name wrong. Lennox Park Advisors. But he has, I, his name is Jason Lehman, and I was talking to him about, a, he has a software that actually scores companies based on their efforts related to diversity. So it takes into account not only ownership, but it takes into account their staffing. And then year over year, you could take that score and sort of, and it's relative to the industry. So maybe a majority owned firm that's very diverse in terms of their staff gets a higher score even than a firm that's uh, minority owned, but not maybe a diverse staff. And in, in workforce and contribution to uh, their communities, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I thought that was pretty cool uh, to kind of be able to eventually use something like that that would hold sort of the industry accountable around that. But I think asking the question is, is so Larry, you know, publicly states this, and I'm sure there was probably numbers uh, out there if he gave any. And if he didn't, I mean, again, numbers don't lie. So you should probably put numbers out there so that people actually know it's not just lip service. But then ISBE, people like ISBE should go back to their client service rep and say, how does your workforce look in 2021 at the end? Now I'd like to move on to personal questions. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? Okay, so I don't get to read as much as I used to. And like I told you, I kind of like read a lot during the day in terms of like articles and things out there. But in terms of a book, I recently read uh, in the beginning of the whole quarantine and, and staying at home, I read The Red Notice. And it was the first page turner I've read in a long time. And I thought it was one of the best books I've read in a long time. So it took me away from like the seriousness of what's going on in my life and our, uh, the, those I love around me to something so serious that's going on in someone else's life that I found to be so fascinating. Uh, and, and, um, I wanted, I yearned for more when the book was over. I, I wanted to, to read more. I love that book. And yeah. the next book I would recommend if you like that book is Billion Dollar Whale. I bought Billion Dollar Whale. I haven't been able to get through the, get it there. I've like read like a first few pages, but it's gotten crazier around here with the kids and stuff. So I haven't had a lot of time to do leisure reading, but I promise that's definitely the next book. I hope to be somewhere on a beach in the foreseeable years. I just want to be somewhere on a beach reading a book. So hopefully that'll be the book I'll be reading. Nice. It's it's also definitely a page turner. What's your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? Great, great, great question. I mean, when you ask me that, the first thing that popped up in my mind is getting married. I think, you know, my husband's family is Persian. They're also Zoroastrian, um, which is the oldest monotheistic religion um, that Christianity, Islam, and Judaism were based off of. And so... For me, I think merging both of our sort of dynamics plus the American upbringing both him and I have had. So when we had our wedding, we had something called a sofre in front of us, which is a table that had different trinkets that symbolized different things, whether it was love, money, growth, but it was an absolutely beautiful table. And then the bride and groom faced the audience. And then there's sort of chitter chatter that goes on during the ceremony. And so a lot of people were sort of taken aback that this was our sort of wedding ceremony. And there's a lot of activity that happened. And even one of the things is that I need to reject him multiple times before I said yes to marrying him. So I think that and embracing it and seeing, you know, my family adapt to it, his family adapt to my family. And then our friends who are, who are some of them haven't been to a Persian ceremony before the way we all sort of, it's just so beautiful. I, I, it's great for me to see that we all came together. I mean, so that, that piece. And then at the end of the ceremony, everyone has to have like something sweet in their mouth before we could proceed to the rest of the reception to like kick off like a sweet marriage, like all these little symbolic cultural traditions that were in his family that we embraced. And then, of course, you know, from my aspect, 
We played um, Arabic music, but specifically music that came from Gaza. You know, my father is um, Palestinian from Gaza. And so that music coupled with belly dancing, I, I just thought it was so beautiful. I actually wanted to be a guest at my own wedding. <laughs> I don't necessarily want it to be the bride at my wedding, but in hindsight, I like got jealous of, of, of the guests that said they had so much fun. Cause obviously as a bride, it's not as much fun. It's a little stressful. So I would say that it personally would probably be the most standout cultural moment is just bridging two different, speak different languages, different religions. Even though most people would say we're in the same part of the world, like we came from the same part of the world, it really is different. So, and then now having two beautiful boys, it's just beautiful to see different cultures, ethnicities, races come together. And now my kids get the best of both of our worlds. That sounds like a really beautiful wedding. I'm wondering, how are you teaching your kids your respective languages? So Emil speaks Spanish, <laughs> which is oh, neither, wow. one of our, neither one of our respective languages. Um, but my husband is probably more fluent in Spanish. So, and I can understand Spanish, but my mom speaks Arabic to Emil as much as she can. My mother-in-law speaks Farsi as much as she can. And then uh, obviously we speak English. Unfortunately, like I can speak Arabic and understand it. I can't read or write it, but I think more importantly, I, I, I do believe that having them be uh, multilingual is going to be great for them. But for me, what's going to be important is instilling the culture and traditions and, and making sure as they get older and our parents aren't there to do it anymore, that my husband and I and our siblings and, and their cousins, we all sort of show them those traditions that that we were fortunate enough to get. Because Maybe when you're young and you're like 13, it's annoying to have the foreign food and things like that. But I know as an adult, you're going to appreciate and be so grateful to have that home-cooked meal, the, the the traditional dishes, whether it's from Lebanon or Palestine or, or from Iran. Nice. What money advice would you give to younger generations? I don't think the younger generation has an issue of speaking up, but I was always told to like ask for what I want. You know, I always tell my younger female employees, even I tell all my employees, but specifically the younger female ones always ask for a raise. Even if you don't think you deserve one, just ask for it because they're never going to, at the end of the day, most likely no one's just going to give it to you, you know, in a, in a closed mouth, never gets fed kind of mentality of, just ask for it. Don't expect, always expect it. And just, at, and if you're not going to get one, understand why you're not going to get one. So that was sort of advice I was, I was given to not be afraid to sort of ask for what I want. Or if I see opportunities, you know, it wasn't always just about money, but if there's like a project or something that you want to work on to not be afraid to ask for it. Cause again, to be told no is fine, but if you never asked, you could have never been sort of involved and in, in had the opportunity. I'm just grateful that I'm hopefully going to be able to give my kids more opportunities per se than, than I had. And, you know, I feel very fortunate. I have a very strong and confident mother that helped guide me. And then I met individuals throughout my time, but I think it'll be always important to like guide and, and, and cause a lot of the younger, more diverse minorities, like we don't really know the opportunities that are available to us. And so I, I, feel like it's going to be important for people like me to give back and 
and to create these opportunities and communicate and go to the different high schools and talk about the different jobs that are available to them and um, to just the importance of at least just knowing what is there for you. I mean, I really didn't know. Uh, I got lucky, I think, and had people that did know and that were willing to sort of give me those chances. I mean, can you believe it? I started at the bottom at ISBE and now I get to lead ISBE. And not only do I feel like I have the skills beyond belief from the investment side and asset allocation perspective and institutional investing and all of that, but now I get to do it in a way where I'm more, you know, there's, I'm fair about it. There's an opportunity there for everyone and it's not closed minded and it's not about the good old boys club and things like that. So I feel like I took your question and, you know, it, it may not perfectly answered it, but that I, I want to create opportunities for this next generation and, and hopefully my kids will participate in that. And you've already have provided a lot of advice, but let me ask this in case you have a different or additional advice. Lastly, what is the best advice you've ever received or advice that you would impart to others? Yeah, so the best advice that I've ever received, I would say, stems from not being afraid to ask for what it is that, at the end of the day, that what it is that I I want and what it is that I want to achieve I don't know that I would be where I am today if I didn't speak up in, in, in a respectful way, not speak up just to speak up or it's just in being confident in myself and what I'm capable of doing, I think was a, a lesson learned early on in my career that not to sell myself short and, and who, who's better to advocate for me than me. And, and so I think that would probably be the best advice is to just be confident in yourself and what your skills are uh, to know what you're not good at and know how to find resources and other avenues to, to where you are lacking and so how you could solve for that. But in general, not to sell yourself short. Thank you so much, Johara, for your time. We really appreciate it. And Acceler Investors does hope to have you participate in some of our future programming. You're very welcome. I'm so excited that I had the opportunity to do this with you. And I'm so fortunate to have gotten to meet you and get to know you more. And I look forward to trying to support Accelerate Investors in their mission. So thank you, Betty. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors. And you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.